Greetings, friends. It is the weekend of Sunday, October the 31st. We continue in our study of the Thessalonians. Today we're in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 9 through 18. I'm going to read that in the ESV version. Now concerning, concerning brotherly love, you, do, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you, you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more, and to aspire to live quietly, and to mind your own affairs, and to work with your hands as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring him with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be called up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. You see, no one knows what circumstances they are going to face tomorrow. That is characteristic of the future. But there is something that comes before tomorrow. And we call it, it is called today. And that's where we must live. You see, we cannot live in tomorrow, but we can live in today. And this issue was troubling the Thessalonian Christians. They were, they were looking toward tomorrow, but wondering what to do today. And Paul's advice to them in this first Thessalonian letter is, as usual per Paul, very, very practical. And we have it here in chapter 4, beginning with verse 9. This is the RSV version. But concerning the love of the brethren, you have no need to have anyone write to you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. And indeed, you do love all the brethren throughout Macedonia. But we exhort you, brethren, to do so more and more, to aspire to live quietly, to mind your own affairs, and to work with your hands as we charged you, so that you may command the respect of outsiders and be dependent on nobody. Keep loving and keep working. That's Paul's excellent advice. First of all, keep loving. So in other words, keep our attitude toward others warm, gracious. Watch how we speak. If we offend, well, then correct it. That's all we have to do. We must keep loving and forgiving one another. We must refrain from being bitter, from being resentful, sarcastic, or critical towards one another. That's a choice. It's a choice that we make when we choose to be bitter. And then this is interesting. Christians do not need to be taught how to love one another, according to the scripture. Paul's amazing claim is that God through the Holy Spirit, teaches us that God's love has been poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit, which has been given to us. That's Romans 5, 5. Um, so, so if we give that love of the Holy Spirit a welcome, we can manifest love to each other. 
If we choose to be bitter, of course, then that love will not be manifested. But if we reject the, the caustic word, the sharp attitude, then we can show kindness and mercy and grace to one another. So the most amazing claim of the Christian faith, or of the many amazing claims of the Christian faith, is by because of the Holy Spirit, believers, followers of Christ, have a new capacity to love, which the secular person does not possess. That does not mean that we will immediately feel loving. See, as believers, we feel the same way non-Christians do. We often feel angry. I often am angry or put off, resentful repulsed. But the wonderful news is that God has said we do not have to act like that. Though we may feel this way momentarily, we can reject that feeling. We do not have to regard others as rivals or enemies. We can look on them as victims in need of sympathy and empathy and help. Then by drawing on the grace that God has given us, we can begin to act lovingly. You see, love is a decision that we make to draw on another's strength, Jesus' strength. And that is why Paul tells the Thessalonians to love each other and to do so more and more. They should aptly apply it, excuse me, in increasing wider areas, reaching out more and more. And then secondly, Paul says that they should keep their hands busy with labor. We should, we should not keep dwelling on, in other words, my own needs and feeling sorry for myself. Think of, think of someone else's problems. That's what Paul is urging. It's clear from what Paul goes on to say that some of these believers, some of these Thessalonians, had stopped working because they thought the end of the age and the coming of the Lord was close, was at hand. So but they basically had become a burden to others. As days and weeks went by and the Lord did not come, they, they ran out of food. And they would have starved if some other of their Christian friends and neighbors had not come to their aid. So they had become a burden to the rest of the church. And Paul's going to deal with that more sharply in the second letter. But, but here he's pointing out the fact that true faith in Christ, faith in the second coming of Christ, does not produce fanaticism. It does not encourage people to abandon everything. We need to recall that one of the last words of the Lord to his disciples was occupy till I come. Luke 19, 13, keep working, keep at it until I come. Even he did not know what day that would be. Mark records that the disciples asked him, what will be the day of your return and the hour of it? Only the father knows that. At this point of time, as a man, he did not know the time of his return. He, he could have known if he had chosen to, but he did not know because he had left that in God the Father's hands. And these Christians in Thessalonica were stressing the immediacy of the coming of the Lord to such a degree that they had stopped working. They had stopped doing things. And that's why Paul pleads with them to keep busy. Keep busy to his advice. Now, don't confuse keep busy with busyness. That's a different thing. But keep from meddling in, in other people's affairs. Do not try to get them to follow some foolish idea that you may have about prophetic things. Keep busy providing to our needs. That's a wonderful word. So we do not become a burden to others. We will win the respect of the outside world. These are very important words that Paul says. And now Paul takes up the third problem, the problem of tomorrow. 
picking up verse 13 through 14, again from the RSV. But we would not have you ignorant, brethren, concerning those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others who do not have hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Twice in this passage, Paul uses a term for death that compares it to sleep. That term, by the way, is never used in the New Testament of anyone except for followers of Christ. It never says of a non-believer that when they died, that they fell asleep. There's a wonderful lesson in that. It shows us that death for the believer is nothing more than sleep. You know, when our loved ones uh, on a Sunday afternoon take a nap, fall asleep on the couch, we don't run to the phone and dial 911. We know that they're quietly resting, that they're going to wake again, and that we are going to have some contact with them again soon. And that's why the New Testament regards the death of a believer as nothing but sleep. Jesus said of the daughter of Jairus who had died, she is sleeping, Mark 5, 39, Luke 8, 52. It's, it's wonderfully, it's amazingly encouraging word for those who are facing the death of dear ones. The question which the Thessalonian believers were asking was, would they see their loved ones again? They were expecting the Lord to come any day, and they felt that their loved ones who had died would not be resurrected until the final resurrection. At the end of time, they would, they would not see them until that very far off event. And this is, in this way, they were like the sister of Lazarus in the New Testament. When Jesus said to Martha, your brother will live again, Martha replies, oh, I know he will live again at the last day. She imagined that Jesus was referring to what she had learned from the Old Testament, that there is a resurrection of all the dead, believers and unbelievers alike, in the last day. But Jesus meant he was going to do something right then and there. And as we know from that story in, in John, that, that he did raise Lazarus from the dead at that very time. The Thessalonians also did not understand that. They thought it would be a long time before they saw their loved ones. And we can, we can best understand this account if we remember a couple of things, five things to be specifically, to be specific, excuse me. First of all, the Thessalonians had clearly been expecting the return of Jesus before any of them died. This was a moment by moment expectancy in the early church. First century Christians never entertained the thought that death would occur to them. They believed The Lord was coming within days or weeks at the most. And in the first chapter of this letter, Paul commends the Thessalonians for waiting for God's son from heaven. That's what they were looking for. Jesus's own words suggest that this would be the case. All the statements about his return were addressed to people who were still alive. And he speaks of them as though they would still be alive when he returned to his disciples. He said, watch for you do not know the hour. Be ready. That's in Matthew 24 and 25. He used terms like, uh, don't be deceived, and the Son of Man will come at an hour that you don't think of or you think not, Matthew 24, Luke 12. There's no mention of the impact of his coming on those who had already died. And the second thing we have to remember is that the Thessalonians, just like us, were projecting the sequences of time into eternity. Now, this is hard. This is tricky, so try to stay with me. We all struggle with the concept of eternity. I tend to think, we tend to think of eternity as time going on endlessly. That as as is the case here on earth, 
that we have to wait for certain events which are not in the which are yet in the future. We think that is how it will be in heaven, despite the fact that the word of God seeks to demonstrate that time and eternity are two different things. They are not the same thing. Time has sequences. It has a past, a present, and a future. But eternity has only one dimension. It's present. It's now. We struggle with that. That's, that is so hard to comprehend. And so did the Thessalonians. So hard. In time, we're all here in one building right now, this morning. If you're listening to this on a Sunday or wherever you are, we're all in, wherever we are, we're, in, we're, we're locked into a segment of time together. We're all feeling the same temperature. But that is true only of our bodies. That says nothing about where our minds have been. Some of us have not been here for the last half hour. It would be interesting to know where everybody had been during the service this morning. Minds are not limited to space or time or sequence. They can go anywhere and experience anything at any time. Eternity is much more like that. That is why we have great difficulty understanding these prophetic passages in terms of time when they are really in terms of eternity, eternal events. Although I believe that Paul knew the difference between time and eternity, he, he reassures the Thessalonians, explaining that the living and the dead will be together when our Lord returns. That, that is the point at issue. He says, in effect, yes, you will see your loved ones immediately when the Lord returns, whether you join that event when you die or whether the Lord comes while you are still alive, your loved ones will be with him. That's the point he's, he's making. He then goes on to give them a new revelation from, in, in 1 Thessalonians 4, 15. For this we declare to you by the word of the Lord. We, we take those words to mean that this is something he had not taught them when he was in Thessalonica. He had taught them about Jesus' death and resurrection and how that would affect them, but he did not give them details of time and circumstance of his coming again. And now Paul is revealing this further truth, picking up verse 15, the second part, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, shall not precede those who have fallen asleep. That sheds a little further light on the subject. We will all be together, says Paul. Don't worry about that. You, you will find your loved ones again when the Lord returns. And then fourthly, he gives them the details of how it's going to happen. Verses 16 through 17, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the archangel's call, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first, and then we who are alive, who are left, shall be called up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall always be with the Lord. Paul calls this the coming of the Lord. And, And we tend to regard the coming of the Lord as though it's a single event. It's sort of immediate, boom, and then, and it's a once and for all kind of appearing. But if, if we look at the scriptures carefully, and we see evidence for this in, in just a minute, the coming of the Lord is actually a series of events. This series has a dramatic beginning, as Paul describes here. When Jesus appearing to, to take his, his living and dead saints to be with him. And it is an even more dramatic ending when, as Jesus himself said, he would manifest himself to the entire world. They shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of glory with all his heavenly hosts. Matthew 24, 30, Mark 13, Luke 21. That's a different event from the one here described. We, we can't make those fit together. In between them is a period of time which Jesus is present on the earth, though not always 
visibly so. And that's what the scripture calls the presence, which is the Greek word parousia, which is a which that is a better translation of this word coming. It's when scripture talks about the coming of the Lord. It sometimes looks at the beginning of that series and sometimes it looks at the end of it. And sometimes, as in the book of Revelation, it is looking at what is going on between those two ends. And we we have to train ourselves to think in those kinds of terms. The parousia of Jesus is a series of events. It's the Lord himself who will come. And that should that should warm our hearts. He's not going to send Michael, the, arch, the archangel, or Gabriel, or Moroni, or anyone else. He's coming himself. The Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a cry of command. And who is that cry addressed to? Well, these three sounds affect different groups. Scripture gives the answer to this. Jesus himself had said in John chapter 5, the hour is coming and now is. See, there's that blending of time and eternity. It's coming in time. It now is in eternity. The hour is coming, and now is when all those that are in the grave shall hear the voice of the Son of Man and shall come forth. John 5.25, Jesus had stood before the tomb of Lazarus, and he cried out, remember in that loud voice, Lazarus, come out, come forth, John 11.43. And to the amazement of the crowd, the dead man appeared, the doorway of the tomb. He's still wrapped up in his grave clothes. He heard the voice of the Son of God, and he came out came forth. Commentators have pointed out if Jesus had not said Lazarus, he would have emptied the graveyard. But the hour is coming when all the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God and come out. And that is what Paul is talking about here. The cry of command is addressed to the dead, to those in the tombs who had fallen asleep in Jesus. The second sound is the archangel's call. The only angel in the Bible called an archangel is Michael. Though Gabriel is a great angel, he is not called an archangel in Scripture. And in the first two, two verses of Daniel chapter 12, we read that the, that the angel said to Daniel, at, the time, at that time shall arise Michael, the great prince, who has charge of your people. That's Daniel 12.1. Your people refers to Israel. Michael is always connected with Israel. Michael shall stand up, and then there'll be, there'll, there'll be a resurrection. Those are in the tombs will come out, Daniel was told. Also, the living nation of Israel will be summoned to a new relationship with God. Details of this event concern the 144,000 Israelites, 12,000 from each, each of the 12 tribes of Israel who are described in the 7th and the 14th chapters of Revelation. These will be called into this new relationship with Jesus to follow him wherever he goes on earth during this time of his presence. He is invisible to the world but visible to them that that all begins when jesus returns for his church and the archangel calls israel into a new relationship with with the lord the third sound is the great trumpet call such as was heard at mount sinai when the law was given then the trumpet sounded so loudly that the people cried out to moses stop it we can't stand it i do not think the world will hear this call only those to whom the call is, is given to. And Paul identifies those in 1 Corinthians 15, the great resurrection chapter. He says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not sleep. In other words, not all believers will go to heaven by death, but we'll be changed in a moment in the twinkle of an eye at the last trumpet, 1 Corinthians 15. This verse is especially addressed to living Christians. We shall not all sleep. We're not all going to die. 
Not all Christians are going to die. Paul includes himself in that. He felt he would be part of it. We shall not all sleep, but we'll be changed. And that's the important thing. We will be changed in a moment, the twinkle of an eye at the last trumpet. When that trumpet sound reaches the ears of living Christians, although it will be inaudible to the world, they will be changed and called up to be with the Lord. And then the fifth thing to note is the comfort that this is intending to bring. It's confusing, I know. But here's the comfort that this is intending to bring. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. 1 Thessalonians 4, 18. The comforting hope is that we shall all be together as the great family of God and forever be with the Lord. That covers everything the church does from then on. Whatever, whatever it is, it is done with Jesus. As we've suggested, Jesus will actually remain on earth behind the scenes, directing the events described in the dramatic portrayal of the book of Revelation. The church will be with him and invisibly participating in directing the course of the great tribulation, but not going through it because they are no longer living on the earth, but are transformed uh, saints affecting the events on the earth. The critical point which Paul stresses is that we will see Jesus face to face. And it doesn't matter where, where we stand theologically on the end of times. I'm not trying to start some kind of debate. I'm just trying to look at what Paul is saying in Thessalonians. But here's the great comfort and the critical point that we can all know. We will see Jesus face to face. And through the centuries, through the centuries of time, that has always been a source of amazing comfort to those whose life is hidden in Christ. What an amazing hope we have when we face the thought of our own death or when we stand at the, the grave of a loved one. We're comforted indeed by this tremendous vision of the tomorrow that awaits God's people. And that is Paul's purpose in giving this revelation. So let's revel in the comfort that it brings in the hour of death, our own or that of those we love, the beloved. Amen. And God bless.